You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with John Kay, who is visiting professor at the London School of Economics, a fellow at St. John's at Oxford, also used to be heading up Said School at Oxford as well, and also the author of, wow, countless books, in addition to writing for the Financial Times on a regular basis, which I've been reading for many, many years, is the author, most recently, with this book called Greed is Dead, co-authored with Paul Collier. And also this book right here, Radical Uncertainty, co-authored with Mervyn King, but many other books, including The British Tax System, which you wrote with Mervyn King many years ago. Also, we've got The Culture of Prosperity, Obliquity, which I this packed more into <laughs> fewer pages than virtually any book I've ever read. Also, The Long and Short of It and Other People's Money. And I think all of these books are really fantastic. I don't know how you write so much, not only with the books, but also with the column. And you really sit at the intersection of academia and the world of practitioners. I think it's, a, it's an envious position and when you write in these last couple books, I think you're also sitting at the interface of both positive and normative. And I think you are critiquing not only the way that economists and other social scientists, decision theorists describe individual behavior and describe uh, collective behavior, but you're also critiquing the, the implied normativity of these folks. And I wonder... It seems like the further away you distance yourself from the academy, the more likely you are to see some of the flaws and, and weaknesses in, in these models. And so many of the books that I've been reading have been from people that, that kind of sit at that interface. And I was wondering, do you think that sitting at interface of kind of thought and practice academy and the world of, of practical people gives you special insight? I think Keynes once said that, the practical man is usually the slave to some defunct economist's theories, right, without even knowing it. But you seem to be well aware of the kind of defunct theories that drive the behavior of so many practitioners. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think you're right that it's moving outside the narrow world of academic life that kind of broadened my perspective. In fact, both Mervyn and I, I think, had similar experiences in the 1990s when we both moved out of a more narrowly focused academic environment and brought up as we both had been on the kind of standard models and approaches of modern economics. When I got involved with business, I said I'd taught and read the firm's maximized profits. And I talked to practical business people and wasn't at all sure that they were maximizing profits. So in the way of an economist, was if they're not maximizing profits, what are they maximizing? And then I came to see that perhaps people mostly are not maximizing anything. They're managing a rather complex environment and they're finding coping strategies to make the best decisions they can in the face of complexity. And in a way, all the books you've described, which superficially seem to be on rather different subjects, all of them are essentially products of that particular shift in worldview. They're all concerned with the question, 
how do people actually navigate a complex environment which they can only imperfectly understand. Right, but if you're a scientist, a social scientist, right, you have to have kind of models of what's going on. You have to create these models that kind of wade through the complexity. And realism doesn't necessarily have to be a part of that model, right? So the famous example that Milton Friedman uses of the billiard ball player who is acting as if he has a, a thorough understanding of the laws of physics, but in fact probably doesn't. Doesn't that work as a way of explaining people? Can't we reverse engineer what it is that, that they're doing with the models that we devise in the academy? Well, that's what I was, thought I was doing when I was asking the question, what are they maximizing? And giving the answer, they're not maximizing anything. But actually, I don't want what I say to be regarded as a critique of model building as such. I think to understand economics, to understand social science, we absolutely need models. And I think I've spent most of my life building models of some kind or another. The mistake is to think that the models we're building are in some sense true descriptions of the world, and they're not. I think models in economics are best regarded as parables, they're stories. And you have lots of classic models in economics, which are really rather silly stories. Models like the prisoner's dilemma, or the George Akerlof lemons paradox, and so on. As stories, they are, they are ridiculous. The prisoner's dilemma is not a commentary on the American criminal justice system. I once talked about Akerlof's lemons model of the used car market to an audience, and someone got up and said he was the secretary of the Retail Motor Federation, which was the organization of used car dealers in the UK. The story was a monstrous libel on his honest, hard-working members. And whether it was a correct description of the used car market or not is not actually the point. It is a way of thinking about how markets with imperfect information operate. And once you've understood that model, you never think about them in quite the same way again. That's, to my mind, the way an economic model works. They're not true in that famous aphorism. All models are wrong, but some are useful. And actually, for Friedman's analogy of the expert billiard player is really quite interesting because there's more to that metaphor than meets the eye. If you think about it, if players did all follow the laws of physics, if they could compute the necessary equations, then the game of, of billiards would actually be very boring because we all engage in perfect plays and there would be nothing more to say. In fact, what makes business and finance interesting is that although people who are good at it play work quite well, none of them play perfectly. And it's actually the ways in which they play imperfectly that give rise to arbitrage opportunities in financial markets, profit opportunities in business. That's the insight, actually, which Frank Knight had in Risk, Uncertainty and Profit a century ago. And as we describe in Radical Uncertainty, it's an insight which has been rather neglected in the, in the last half century. Right. It would not be very fun to watch kind of two computers playing chess with one another. I don't think that anybody's going to pay good money to watch that. That's really quite interesting because although computers now play chess very well, they don't, still don't play it perfectly. Mm -hmm. And that's why the, there's a decent prospect 
And even if it was two computers, one of them would win. So it's not quite as boring as the, the perfect mathematicians <laughs> playing billiards, but it's pretty boring. It's the human interaction that actually makes sport and actually life interesting. I love that quote by George Box about all models are wrong, but some are useful. There's another quote from, from Keynes, which is that the economist's job is a combination of the, the science of model design and the art of model selection. And, you know, when I teach my students in finance and strategy, I use a lot of stories. And usually when I talk to them 20, 30 years after graduation, that's usually all they remember are the stories. And they talk about how having a collection of stories or frameworks is how they navigate the world. And it's just about figuring out which story or combination of stories helps them to wade through all of the mess. But isn't that sort of what knowledge discovery is all about? It's about converting the uncertainty into risk or the example you use also, I think in the book is converting the bowl of spaghetti into a, a decision tree. Isn't it about taking the confusing mess of the world and seeing some order in it, seeing some structure in it. There, you tell that whole story about the emergence of the probabilistic turn and how statistics and prior to Pascal and Fermat and all those folks, they didn't see the underlying structure. And so isn't that discovery of predictability and the discovery of patterns and the discovery of risk in what appears to be uncertainty, isn't that kind of how scientific discovery happens? Well, I agree with half of that, and I think disagree with another half. I think the half that is absolutely right is what scientific discovery is about, is as we're discovering patterns in what seems incomprehensibly complex reality and data. Uh, but the world we're dealing with in economics and business and finance is not stationary. There are not underlying models in the way that we talk about the motion of the planets, which has remained unchanged for several centuries. And not only has it remained unchanged for centuries, but actually we know what these equations are, and they're not affected by what we do or what we think about them. Venus does not care what we think about its equations of motion. But the people who work in organizations and financial markets do care what we think about. And that world is affected by our interaction with it. And we're not very sure what the underlying equa determining equations are. So in that sense, we're never going to get the predictability in economics that we can get in natural sciences. And the situations in which we could have, can apply these probabilistic models are really quite limited. It certainly applies to the kind of games of chance that Pascal and Fermat looked at. It applies to some of the underlying fairly stationary processes, like the determinants of human mortality or motor accidents, things that it can be insured really quite well. It applies to repetitive manufacturing processes, the kind of things to which General Electric and Motorola applied Six Sigma, for example. But it doesn't apply to the kind of decisions we're taking. We're typically making in, in financial markets, for example. And similarly with the cost-benefit analyses, which are so widespread. Really what we're doing in these cases is making up numbers to fill in the empty shells in our spreadsheet. And that's 
I think, not a very effective way of dealing with uncertainty. I think that when you describe people as improvising and making do under the circumstances and taking stabs at solutions. So I think that your description of how decision makers muddle through is probably an accurate one in many circumstances. But I think some social scientists would critique people and decision makers for failing to utilize more scientific approaches. Certainly when we look at the response to the coronavirus I think a lot of people would argue that there has not been enough data collection. There has not been enough understanding of underlying probabilities. There has not been enough attempt to impose models on what's actually happening on the ground. How does one know the extent to which one can assume stationarity about some kind of phenomenon? Well, you clearly couldn't assume stationarity about COVID. But I agree with you that one of the problems of COVID was a failure to obtain data. Following the business of data collection in the UK, it was about three months into the virus before we actually started collecting on a random basis information which provided you with uh, knowledge of the actual incidence of the virus in the population. And that was absolutely essential information if you were even to begin to construct a model. The people from the very early days of the pandemic nevertheless built models, never nonetheless. So an early prediction was that without certain measures, we would have 550,000 deaths in the UK from, from COVID. 550, I think the precision of that figure immediately starts to cast doubt on it. 500, not 600, not 400, not 700. That's an observation, again, about the way in which people use models. You can use models to say this is what might happen to an unchecked pandemic. You can use a model to say this is an indication of the kind of effect we might have if we introduced lockdown measures or vaccinations and the like. You can use models to illustrate scenarios and tell stories. If you think you can use models to predict, then I think you're attempting a kind of pseudo-scientific precision that is simply not available. Well, I think there's two problems that you mentioned. And the example you use in the book is we can take a satellite and send it over many millions of miles and have it more or less go exactly where we want it to go. But when we go to Waze to figure out how long it's going to take to get to the uh, gym, Waze is oftentimes fairly inaccurate. And I think there's two things going on there. One is we're trying to predict human behavior, and that's a very different thing. It's a complex phenomenon. But the other thing has to do with the feedback mechanism, right? Where if everyone's looking at Waze, then they're going to change their behavior. And so in financial markets, there's the first thing, which is the complexity of it and, and the failure of our models to capture it. But then there's this reflexivity, which you also mentioned, which is how models themselves impact the phenomenon which they attempt to, to describe. And I think this book, Radical Uncertainty, it's in many ways a response to the financial crisis, even though it was published quite long after the financial crisis. And I think much of the book is really about how the practitioners fell in love with the models. And I teach in a financial engineering program and you know we teach these models and it, it does seem as if the models themselves learning the models 
has a profound impact on the people who wade into these markets. They do oftentimes fall in love with the models. Why is that? Do we just have a natural tendency? You mentioned uncertainty, avoidance, and Ellsberg. Is it that we, when we find a model, it's like a lifeboat or a life preserver, we cling to it? Or is it something about these models themselves and the stories that if they're compelling, you know, we, we tend to overinvest in them? What is it about these models that causes us to, to overestimate their importance? Well, there's a simple story that if I spent a year attending one of your finance courses, it's understandable that I'm going to be reluctant to believe that these models aren't really very useful in the job I have. There's this famous Upton Sinclair comment that it, it is hard to get someone to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And that's certainly part of what's going on here. What also struck me in the run-up to the financial crisis was that the executives in banks, few of whom understood these models, really wanted to believe that their risk professionals had used these models to get risks under control. And of course, we know they hadn't. I remember talking at a conference which a London law firm had organized for the general counsel of some of the major investment and retail banks in London. And we had the idea that I would explain value at risk modeling to them. And I was struck by two reactions from it, most of them from the same people. One was, nobody has ever told us this before. And secondly, is that really all there is to it? And there was a bit more to it, but the essence of the story, you can tell pretty quickly and straightforwardly. And there is a siloing, I think, of duties and of obligations within banks, which meant that few people outside the community of risk modelers had any real knowledge of what the risk modelers themselves were doing. So I think you say that the motto of the Royal Society is take no one's word for it. And the discovery of knowledge is really about challenging existing models and interpretations. So you're saying that the executives really failed to interrogate or question the experts that they were relying on. Why would we expect them to be able to make sense of what the experts are saying? I mean, right now we're going through a period where I think most people would say, trust the science, trust the scientists, right? But if the true scientific approach is to take no one's word for it, shouldn't we force the scientific claims to be understandable to ordinary people? Well, I think bank executives should have understood rather more about the models risk professionals were doing than they did. That's not saying that they should have taken courses and done exercises to build the models themselves at the end of the courses. That they had no familiarity, really, with what the models were trying to do, I think it is pretty shocking. And you're right, we hear a lot of people saying, we're relying on the we've heard it particularly in the last year or so. We're relying on the science, trust the science or whatever. It is in the nature of science, as the Royal Society's motto explains, that there is no such thing as the science. There is only the, the provisional knowledge which we have at the moment. And it's in the nature of science that it should and will evolve over time as we learn more. 
I want to turn to this book that you wrote with Paul Collier. It's Greed is Dead. And I think this is really sort of an aspirational claim rather than an empirical one, because I think your your actual description of the world at the present moment is a little bit more pessimistic than the title of the book, where in your description of the world, greed is is quite indeed very alive. And you, you talk about individualism. I think you're making a hopeful claim that which is this toxic approach is coming to a close. But is there really any evidence of that? I think contemporary politics, as you point out, even though it appears to be the populism that we see appears to have some communitarian strain. I think you argue that it's really just a continuation of this individualistic turn. I think the politics we have in this sense is very mixed. That you have the world of Trump or Boris Johnson is a rather strange mixture of individualism and communitarianism. The cheering rallies are, in a sense, communitarian. Uh, the identification with the all for in this country, the Red Wall voters, and it's communitarian. On the other hand, there's a pretty heavy leavening of individualism in it. And the individualism of, of Trump pretty knows no bounds in the sense. But that's a cynical politician exploiting these mixture of sentiments for his own men. And um, Boris Johnson, in a sense, is out of the same out of the same category. But you're right, greed is je- dead is a is an aspirational slogan rather than a description of the current reality. But actually, we're encouraged by the, the range of material in terms of the intellectual debate, which is appearing with similar kind of themes and arguments to ours. So since Paul and I actually wrote the book, we've seen, for example, Michael Sandel's book on meritocracy simultaneously with our book, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Jonathan Sachs, published a book which was remarkably similar in its sentiments. Robert Putnam's new book, again, falls into the same category. We would like to think there is an intellectual tie going our way, even if that hasn't yet manifested itself in popular politics and attitudes. Well, certainly in, in the boardrooms, we're hearing conversations about kind of a shift, at least, in how people think about corporate governance, right, with discussions of ESG and social responsibility. I was wondering maybe if you could talk about this change in corporate governance. You mentioned some examples of companies that you admire and CEOs that you admire, and these are ones that do not put profit as their number one objective. And I think that the corporate governance literature, which was built on principal agency theory over the last 40 years, and it flowed from that famous Milton Friedman piece, I think it was, what, in the 1960s that came out? And he argued that the business of business should be to maximize the return on equity for shareholders, presumably because I think he had faith in the other aspects of the law. He had faith in kind of contract law and political system when it came to identifying and controlling externalities and so forth, labor law. Do you think that this shift in vision and move away from this idea of profit maximization comes from a realization that those assumptions about the other aspects of our civilization are inaccurate? What is it that's, that's driving this? What, what really led to the rise of this view of the corporation? What you're talking about at the moment is very much 
in line with the book I'm working on at the moment, which is Business in Society, as a matter of fact, is the provisional title at present. And uh, part of it takes the Friedman Doctrine and attempts to take it apart. And there are several difficulties. One, which we've been really talking about most of the time so far, is that it's not at all clear how you'd go about maximizing profits, if that were, even if that was your objective, in a complex, uncertain world. You don't know what will maximize profits, and you don't know after the event whether you've succeeded in maximizing profits. That's one problem. Another problem is that organizations whose purpose is to maximize profits are really not very interesting organizations to work for, except for purely instrumental reasons. But my classic example of that was Bear Stearns, which had this famous sign saying, we make nothing but money. And what we learned was that organizations that make nothing but money, in the end, don't make very much money either. And the reason they don't make money in the long run is that they're torn apart essentially by the greed of their own employees because people who work there have no reason other than their own personal search for reward actually to work in these organizations. And what I'm writing will be a, a fairly aggressive attack on the principal agent model of the corporation. It will argue that businesses are essentially social organizations and I take some rather forceful British examples. One is um, ICI, which for most of the 20th century was Britain's leading industrial company, chemical company operating in Britain and around the world. And until 1990, its mission statement was the purpose of ICI is the responsible application of chemistry of related sciences to business. And actually, they steered imaginatively away initially from a focus on explosives and dye stuffs into petrochemicals and fertilizers, and then ultimately into pharmaceuticals and built a successful pharmaceutical business. And it's the rump of ICI's pharma business, which is responsible for the AstraZeneca virus vaccine, which has been the principal thing in defeating COVID in the UK. But actually, I say the rump of that business, because in the 1990s, they decided to change their statement. Their mission was now to create shareholder value by focusing on businesses in which they had a competitive advantage. They um, tried to sell some of their boring old businesses, buy a lot of exciting new ones. And it was easier to buy exciting businesses than to sell old ones. And in the, in the event, the cr company crumbled under a mountain of debt and in 2006, 2007 rather, ceased to exist as an independent company. You might think that was a one-off, except I could tell pretty much the same story, except in rather more extreme form, about Britain's second largest industrial company, which was GEC, Britain's General Electric Company which also disappeared in 2001 as a result of its attempts to maximize shareholder value. Or Marks & Spencer, which was an absolutely iconic British retailer, which decided in the 1990s it wanted to make a billion a year of profit. 
It did make a billion of a year of profit in 1998, and that was the peak. Its sales fell off a cliff, and it's never made as much of a billion pounds profit in any subsequent year. There's a story there that I talk about it as the fall of the icons, and I can find pretty similar stories in the US. Uh, Britain's GEC is to some degree paralleled ultimately by American General Electric. The retail story, Sears, under the rather dubious stewardship of Eddie Lampert, provides a striking story for the US as Marks and Spencer does for the UK. I could go on and on with these anecdotes. I just say that there are, observe there are quite a lot of them. And I would end that particular story of ICI by saying that way back in 2006, just before ICI disappeared as an independent company, I gave a talk describing its decline at a conference. And a couple of days later, I got a rather pained letter from the Vice President for Corporate Social Responsibility at ICI, which said, to paraphrase only slightly, we may have screwed up the business, but we did a great job on corporate social responsibility. And I thought, this is so far from understanding the point that your corporate social responsibility was not to screw up the business. It was not to have published glossy brochures, which of course we sent me a copy of, describing the benefits that ICI gave to the environment and showing pictures of happy employees with lots of non-white faces and people in wheelchairs. That's not what corporate social responsibility is. Corporate social responsibility is running businesses well for the benefit of all their stakeholders, which was exactly what ICI did up to 1990. So this normative principle of Friedman's that the company should be run for the benefit of the shareholders, it's built on a positive understanding of human behavior, right? It's built on this assumption that people are greedy. And if everyone is individualistic and greedy and they're not pro-social beings, then really the only choice you have is running the company for the benefit of the shareholders or running it for the benefit of the managers. And if those are the only two options, it seems like running it for the benefit of the shareholders is a, is a better alternative. So is the problem with that framework really its understanding of human motivation, the belief that people are only motivated by extrinsic rewards? And would it naturally follow that if we understood humans better, then we would come up with a very different kind of normative understanding of the corporation? Yep. It is, first of all, a misunderstanding of human motivation, that humans are not overwhelmingly motivated by the search for individual re reward. And it's not just that the assumption is wrong, but it's that human societies and corporations are successful precisely because that assumption is wrong. I think there's a quote from Mike Tomasello, the, the primatologist, who said, no one ever saw two chimpanzees carrying a log together. And even the cooperative activity that is required to do that is beyond the capacity of the mammals that are most like us. It is precisely because humans are pro-social and for mechanisms for working together that we've created organizations and ultimately created the prosperity which we have. I've often framed this as there is literally nobody in the world who knows how to build a civil aircraft. 
but 10,000 people working together do. And that's an achievement of this mixture of cooperation and competition, which has made us successful as a species. And to throw away that sensitive understanding in favor of an individualistic model of human behavior is a terrible mistake, and it ends up with a Bear Stearns outcome, which I described. And it's not just Bear Stearns that the financial crisis in 2008 was full of organizations which had essentially been torn apart by the greed of their own employees. Now, you said perhaps we have a choice of running corporations for the benefit of managers or the benefit of shareholders. Well, I think I go back to what I said earlier. We don't know how to maximize in a sense. We're not maximizing on behalf of either group of agents. What the thoughtful chief executive of the corporation is charged with doing, as I see it, is maintaining a balance. It's like steering a boat round a, down a river. You don't want to go too close to one bank or the other or another. That's a sensitive job. And of course, it's not just done by the chief executive. Another mistake which arises from this kind of modeling is the individualization of businesses themselves, so that G was Jack Welch, Apple was Steve Jobs. Of course, these people had quite a large influence on the business. But if you think Apple really was just Steve Jobs, you have basically misunderstood what the nature of Apple's achievements and strength was. It was a combination of people who were good on design, people who could write software, engineers who understood not just the technology, but how to make the technology user-friendly and so on. I think it's key to the way I think about it, that for the nature of firms is that they're built up from this collection of capabilities. They're not collections of assets, and they're not a nexus of contracts, to use another phrase common in that Chicago Law and Economics School. Well, I think this critique of that you and Paul wrote, the Greed is Dead book, I think the title Greed is Dead is really only a partial description of what you're discussing in the book, because I think you're not critiquing greed as much as you're critiquing this very individualistic view of people, only part of which seems to be around greed. You talk about the economists, but you also talk about the lawyers. And I think you argue that the kind of rights talk or rights revolution is just the other side of the same coin. And so the woke revolution and Donald Trump are kind of flip sides of the same phenomenon. Could you maybe dig into that side of the argument? Right? How is it that the whole discourse around rights is a variant on this view of society made up of individuals primarily? Yeah. And I think the woke academics who are engaged in moral posturing in our universities in a rather tiresome way, their narcissistic individualism, in this sense, is you can see it as a kind of mirror image of Trump's narcissistic individualism, that it's all about me, in this sense. Now, you were also talking about the growth of rights talk in terms of the legal frameworks in which we operate. I think this is a story really of the way in which after the Second World War, so much of the intellectual framework that drove both our politics and our economics was driven from a kind of rather individualistic American political philosophy, 
which was reflected in different ways, whether it was on the left, the kind of Rawlsian theory of justice, which is very much about justice as relationship between individuals in contrast to the kind of communitarian story that someone like Michael Sandel would want to tell. It also underpinned the way we think about economics as well. And we want to try and push against that particular tide of thought to emphasize what I was saying a few moments ago, that not only are humans not particularly individualistic as a species, but the reason that they've come to dominate the world is precisely that they're not individualistic as a species. That's why we are able as humans to engage in these complicated constructions from power stations to complicated aircraft, which no other species even comes close to being able to match. You argue that people have lost faith in, in markets and politics, and both markets and politics are institutions which are designed to reconcile individual goals. And if we have an individualistic view of the world, then why would we not view these institutions which are designed to harness and intermediate these different individualistic goals? Why are people losing faith in them? Well, I think they don't understand them very well. And indeed, the descriptions of them which are provided are pretty repellent. I've written that we talked about markets and corporations and from the 1990s in ways that were both repulsive and false. If businesses really were like the ones Friedman was describing, they would be a rather unpleasant place to work. And actually, the reasons why people would say we don't want people and organizations like that anywhere near our schools and our hospitals and other things we care about would be, I think, very persuasive. But I actually think that what we need is much more in terms of organizational and managerial disciplines in our schools and our hospitals and in many aspects of life. But I think we can only get to that point if we understand that the description of markets as being populated exclusively by greedy, selfish individuals is not a good description of how markets work. In a sense, markets work, I've argued this many times, only because they're embedded in a social context. And if we go back to the lead up to the financial crisis of 2008, what was happening was essentially we were trying to develop more and more capital markets that could be based around trading in anonymous markets. And it ended very badly, not surprisingly, it ended very badly. Whereas markets for credit have historically typically been based on relationships and embedded in these relationships, whether it was the community bank manager or the relationship between the investment, the long-term relationship between the investment banker and the corporation. So you've been involved in business education for part of your career. And business schools are cranking out the leaders for corporations. Law schools are cranking out people that are going on to lead in, in politics. What are we doing wrong in our education? Of course, these institutions are staffed by theorists. They're staffed by academics who work with models and design theories. 
do you think that it's possible to educate people in, in ways that insulate them from the models? Academics have to do what academics do. They're going to be designing models and they're going to be developing these models. Do you think that academics can do what they do and can separate that from what they're educating people about? Or do you think that the academics themselves have to change how they do what they do in order for the education to be done in a way that is is fruitful? I think there are pieces where I've said once or twice already, it's to say that I'm absolutely not against people using models. I think models are indispensable in social sciences and especially in economics. What I'm against is taking the models over seriously and believing that when we write a model, we're making a true statement about the world. We're not. I guess the question is, do you think it's that the academics fail to appreciate the limitations of their models, or is it that there's something lost in translation, right? That when it goes from the academic world into practice, that the practitioners, are they're, they're the ones that fundamentally fail to understand the provisional nature of these models. I think it's a bit of each, actually, that academics, as you described, do what academics do, and the way you get publications and tenure is you attach a few wrinkles or relax a few sum- assumptions to X's model, and that's what you do, and since, since that's what you do, it's pretty much what you teach. So you don't devote a lot of time to teaching the limitations of the model. On the other hand, in the way I described earlier for the investment bank lawyers, they assumed that the risk professionals knew what they were doing and that they didn't need to understand what it is was being done. So there was a job of translation that was needed in order to try and explain what you could do with these models and the things you couldn't do. And of course, part of the central 2008 problem was that the models were supposedly there to handle, to protect the banks against the extreme events, which could not be effectively incorporated within the models. We quote, uh, I think at the beginning of Radical Uncertainty, that famous David Vineyard comment, CFO of Goldman Sachs, that we've experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. What he meant, or should have meant, was that we've experienced events which were not within the scope of the Goldman Sachs modeling exercise. And much understanding of these models and the databases on which they were based would have led to you being much more ready to anticipate that this kind of outcome would actually occur. I mean, I had an experience once where I was hosting a bunch of consultants from one of the top consulting firms, and they came to the university to learn about things like game theory and evolutionary theory and so forth. And And I remember after we as academics explained the models, and then we adjourned to dinner and everybody started talking about what they had learned and what they had done is translated these models into something that they could understand and apply. And we academics we were like, no, 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 you're not getting the model right, right. You know, you're making all sorts of inferences about the model that are incorrect. And I thought on the one hand that this was initially that this was a bad thing, that they really didn't understand what we were doing. But then I began to realize, well, that's actually probably exactly what you want. You want the practitioners to forget about the limitations of the model. The models are too restrictive. They're not really something that you can apply in practice. So I wonder if the problem in practice, is it that they have too much faith in, in the models or is it that they forget that 
we as academics are making assumptions and that we are setting boundary conditions and that they lose sight of those boundary conditions and they lose sight of those assumptions once they get out into the field. It's funny, it's sometimes one and sometimes the other. And the extreme case of that is really economic forecasting, where on the, on the one hand, if you talk to business people, they're very skeptical about the value of economic forecasting. On the other hand, they desperately want these economic forecasts. <laughs> I remember a session, ironically, given what I was saying earlier, it was run by the chairman of ICI at the time. And the first part of the session was spent going through the reasons why not only was economic forecasting not reliable, but why it could not be reliable. This meeting had been set up so that the ICI people could express their contempt for economic forecasting. And uh, I remember it ended by the chairman saying, but we really need to know these things about the future. We need to explain that we don't know nothing about the future, but if he wants to know what the dollar sterling exchange rate will be in 2030, we can't give him a sensible answer to that question. I must say, it has been frustrating for me, but particularly when I was running a consultancy business, you would be called by people who would ask questions like, what will the dollar sterling exchange rate be in, in 2030? And what I thought is the right answer to that question, which is, tell me what, why you want to know that. And I will try and frame some more sensible question, which is possible to answer. But that response didn't work. And it didn't work for two reasons. One is that the person at the end of the phone knew that if you rang up the Goldman Sachs economics department, there would be someone there who would give him an answer. And secondly, what it typically was someone who had been asked by his boss for an answer to that question or was constructing a spreadsheet in which he needed to fill in that number. And he didn't really care what the number was. He simply needed the number to fill up all. And I'm afraid that's what a lot of economic forecasting is in business is used for. Yeah, I think a cynical view of consulting in general would be that the consultants will provide the executives with kind of ground cover for whatever it is that they intend to do, right? Provide them with some kind of justification for a decision that they have already made. I do think that's a bit cynical, given that I have some of my best friends are consultants. There is a certain logic to it, because if you're not providing the opinions that people want, then you will go out of business. That cynical view, you could also apply it to the academy in some way, right? There's a demand for insight. And one thing I think we've learned is that people don't necessarily want the most accurate insight or they don't want the most uh, truthful insight. They want the insight that is most useful. And oftentimes the utility of an insight has nothing to do with its veracity or its uh, demonstrability or the solidity of evidence to, to support it. And so I think you see this in journalism where only a subset of kind of academic arguments ultimately make it into to the media. And you've been working in media. I know you're not a regular journalist, but more of a columnist. Do you think that the marketplace for ideas, I remember Bernard Williams, I went to a seminar at Cambridge back in, I think, 20 years ago. And Bernard Williams said this notion that the marketplace for ideas will always lead to the truth. It's kind of an absurd one, right? It's an article of faith, but there's no empirical evidence to, to support it. So if Keynes says that 
some defunct economist is influencing a practitioner, could it be the other way around that it's really the practitioners that are driving what ideas rise to the top in academia? Is there this demand for models that will justify the business practices that, that people are trying to pursue or the policy ideas that, that politicians are pursuing? I think there's some truth in that. And if you go back, we were talking earlier about the Friedman 1970 article. That article was, in a sense, the starting gun in what was a campaign by people in business to influence the ideas that were coming out of the academic world. And it was a campaign that led to a lot of funding for the law and economics movement, for example, and much of the theoretical underpinning of the principal agent models of the corporation we've been discussing was the product of these kind of programs. Yes, I think there was a process in which business actually started and was quite successful in persuading academic and near-academic, like the think tank world, people to pursue the kind of ideas that were congenial to business. And of course, the aspect that was most congenial at all to managers of business was the idea that managers needed to be paid a lot more related to the stock price than had been true historically. And so if we're going to pursue other lines of inquiry, like the ones that you've advocated in these books, will that require some demand for this new line of inquiry? And if so, where will the demand come from? The media is probably not the place where we would expect a demand for necessarily good insight. <laughs> I think the media is a world where clicks matter and what needs to happen in order for the academy to pursue these newer ideas or ideas that are, I mean, they're more useful. I think you're advocating things that are certainly more useful in some ways, but what needs to happen in order for us to move away from the way of thinking that you've described in both these books? It's an interesting question. And one would like to think that it would be a kind of political reshaping that leads to a new kind of dialogue that understands that market societies are basically the only goal in the only game in town on the one hand, but also recognizes the model of markets, which is based on rational maximizing greedy individuals, is a poor understanding of how it is that markets actually work. So it's that kind of political driver, which it seems to me is needed. I think this disappointment, and I was just talking about this with some people this morning, if you go back to the era of Tony Blair and Bill Clinton and so on, you could see the attempt to create a new political centre, which seemed to be present there and interesting and vibrant, and yet it died under and part the personal deficiencies of these were two rather powerful charismatic leaders. But in the end, there were personal issues which prevented them having positive effects in the long run. And we see now a rather depressing political scene in this sense. You have your extreme partisanship in the United States. We have in Britain a left which is ta- a left party which is talking only to itself and a, a right government which has nothing to say. I hope that this creates a vacuum which can be filled by better politics, but that's quite a big ask. But I think that's where the impetus has to come from. And what I think we can do as 
writers, broadcasters, people who want to engage in argument in a public sphere, not just within the academy. We can play a large part in stimulating that kind of debate. I hope that's what we're doing. And you mentioned examples of constructive dialogue. You mentioned kind of Alfred Sloan, right? And he's famous for stimulating a corporate culture where ideas could be discussed freely. Certainly, the political landscape is one where people find it difficult to have serious conversations. But the academy, the universities, have always been seen as safe spaces where people could engage in in free dialogue. I think we've seen in the last couple of years that even universities are becoming places where it's difficult to have constructive discussions and dialogues. Are you concerned for the universities? Do you think that universities are becoming places where these individualistic perspectives, which ultimately lead to these kind of tribalistic divisions, are ultimately going to stultify the discovery of new ideas? I'm very worried. I I think you use the phrase safe space. And of course, what safe space now means within within the academy is definitely not the environment in which you're free to say anything you like. It's the environment in which you're not allowed to say a whole range of things that are uncongenial to certain groups of people. And there's a kind of intimidation which has cowed people into that sort of frame of thought. I very much hope that we can use our influence in universities to resist that kind of encroachment and make it very clear that uh, all kind of views are open to free expression in our universities. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me. I have to say that it's very difficult to to discuss with you your books because your books are it's almost like reading my own thoughts, right? These books are fantastic. They're wide ranging. They cover a lot of different fields. They mention an enormous number of authors, but the thinking in these books is to me, probably because I've been reading you for so long, but it's difficult to find things that I disagree with in these books. And so it makes for a a difficult interview. Everybody Greed is Dead, which is the latest book authored with with Paul Collier, highly recommended. And this one, Radical Uncertainty, which covers enormous amount of territory, decision theory, economic modeling, narratives, policy making, scientific inquiry, definitely worth checking out. Also, I think obliquity is super short, but filled with brilliant insight. Culture and prosperity, long and short of it, which I love is sort of a quick and dirty way to understand financial markets and other people's money. So check them out. Thank you so much, John, for joining me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.